Love Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. An award-winning producer, director, and writer, Joanna has contributed to many compelling, entertaining, and thought-provoking programs. Her work has received eight Gemini nominations in Canada and taken home three trophies. She's produced over 150 hours of television series and one-offs as an in-house executive producer and made independent documentaries for her own companies, Wild East Productions and Center East Media. Titles include Hot Docs International Film Festival, Winner, Forgiveness, Stories for Our Time, as well as International Favorite, An Uncommon King, and Going On. Joanna played a key role in the launch of IFC, the independent film channel in Canada. She's currently producing When You Die, a feature documentary. And Carol, I understand that Joanna took your international filmmaking class. Intentional filmmaking class, yes. She did, and we had so much fun. I'm still in the international (laughs) thought. (laughs) Well, we do. We have people from China and India, places all over the world. It's lots of fun. But Johanna studied with Tom and I, and now she's one of the finalists on the Roy Dean Spring Grant for her film, When You Die. So thank you, Johanna, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It's a delight to be talking to you and Claire today. Great. Well, in the intentional filmmaking class, uh, I asked people who wanted to have their film intended for by someone else they didn't know. It was very funny. I sent this out in an email. I didn't use the word prayer. I used intention, which is pretty much the same thing, but it doesn't have any any baggage with it. And Johanna was the only one who said, yes, I would really like someone to intend for me. So I uh, sent to some friends who are uh, very strong believers in creating the future through your intentions. And there were three of them. And they uh, intended for Johanna to receive uh, goodness and mercy and money. <laughs> and uh, I remember that uh, that. This was over a period of four or five months, and that good things started to happen to you, not always in cash in your hand, but didn't you get an office given to you, Johanna? Well, uh, it it wasn't totally given to me, but um, a number of wonderful circumstances came together that one of our uh, clients, one of the things that Century East Media does, aside from make documentaries, uh, but I think the thing that pays our bills is uh, webcasting and working with archival material and uh, hosting um, archives for for a client. And so um, uh, one of our principal clients that we do archival work for uh, was moving into a new office space, and it was bigger than they actually needed. 
And this gave us um, a, a place to move into uh, at a very reasonable rent. Um, and, it's, uh, you know, we would never have been able to uh, move downtown and have a view of the Halifax Harbor, which is stunning, uh, without that. So it really helped to bring um, um, our edit suite and, and all the people that, you know, work contract or, or full-time for us in one place. I mean, it's a small company. It's my business partner and I, but we have a lot of people that come in and do things for us from time to time. And so it, uh, it really gave us a, a home, and it shifted our identity a lot and, um, and, and helped us in many ways. Um, so that, that, was, that was a little miracle, definitely. Oh, yes, it sounds like it. And I understand that, some, that over the course of the couple of years now that some of the people who hire you to work for them seem to pay you to go to cities where you needed to be for when you die interviews. And that also sounds like the universe is backing your film. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly does. Yeah, we've been... <laughs> So fortunate that way. In fact, a lot of uh, When You Die has been shot um, because we were piggybacking on, on other work that we were doing. Uh, now, we never charged you know, our clients for the extra days that we worked in those cities, but we saved an awful lot on international airfare because we've filmed uh, When You Die in, uh, in the U.K., in, in Britain, in Wales, and we've filmed in California, and we've filmed, uh, you know, just all over the place, really. And we're really fortunate that uh, that we can do that. And now I'm, I've got my fingers crossed for uh, something to take us to Tucson, Arizona, because I've got some people I need to talk to down there. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Oh, yes, yes, that's, that should be the focus. Uh, some of uh, the people that are physically sponsored by us are in Tucson, and they recently invited me over. I went and had a wonderful uh, time with them while they uh, they toured, let me tour Tucson and see it from the residence eyes. That's quite a, a special city. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear. I certainly have the impression that it must be a great place because there's amazing things going on there. So uh, that makes sense. Yes. It, well, yeah, and special people that live there and art. It's very full of artists, etc. stuff like that. Okay, so can you share things with us about dying that you learned from making this film? That's what I'd like to hear. Wow. Well, you know, I should first you know, give a little bit of the, the, the background to say that, you know, it seems like um, you would think that we would be, you know, completely at home with the idea that we die, but uh, apparently this just isn't the case at all because 80% of us say we want to die at home, but 60% of us end up uh, in the hospital in intensive care. 40% of those 60 are in intensive care when they die, which means that it's harder to die today than ever before. And partly it's because we have a medical system that has been created to cure us. Um, <laughs> but, but death isn't a curable thing. When, when the time for you know, healing is past, we have to learn once again, like my grandparents knew, 
how to how to die and how to bring it back into community, bring it back. Maybe it's not okay to be at your home, but into a setting that is more home-like, like hospices and so on, where where people can be cared for uh, in, without you know being plugged into machines and breathing apparatus and and all and all of this that that make death so incredibly frightening, because we we have been. Uh, prolonging death, and the cost has been extraordinary, both in terms of personal suffering and uh, economically. So, so this this whole project, when you die, came about um, with a, a really strong desire to reclaim death as you know one of the most important passages of human life alongside birth. So, I kind of think the times that we're in is not so different than the natural childbirth movement that happened in the 70s. And so, you know, we need our our champions to help us, you know, normalize uh, the conversation around death and dying. Um, And so so I've learned a lot on this journey, and I'm continuing to learn all kinds of things. And the the project is looking at death and dying from a mind-body-spirit point of view. So it's not just how do we take care of the body, you know, nor is it just looking at the psychological implications, but it's also looking at uh, does consciousness continue after death? And there's all kinds of amazing scientific research being done around this issue, um, as well as, you know, incredible numbers of people who have had near-death experiences. So if you look at all of these mind, body, spirit together, does it change how we want to die? And I think that the the answer is yes, that we really can learn something from all aspects of what it is to be a whole human being and what could be beneficial to help people as they are passing. So, wow, where do I begin? You know, I mean, I think just even putting all of those things together has just been a, a, a learning experience for me in terms of the people that I've I've met. I don't know that I have you know, come to any solid conclusions for myself yet, but I do know that um, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect death. You know, we we don't need another bar, you know, to, to have to try to climb, you know, like the per- perfect dress size, you know. <laughs> there's no perfect death. Um, and uh, And everybody has their own... Um, needs, and everyone has their own um, uh, situation and capacity. So each of those, in that in that sense, it's a very individual um, journey. But it is also one that 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 need not be um, uh, left alone. You know, there's the, you know bringing bringing death back into a normal part of life means that uh, in my grandmother's case, for instance. You know, they lived in a family homestead where nine brothers and sisters, many of them were born in that house, and an mm-hmm. awful lot of them died in that house. Uh, so they all were very comfortable with birth and death and, you know, the way the seasons turn because it is a natural part of every living thing. So 
That might be a long answer. I don't know. Wow, that's incredible, incredible knowledge. And so I'm really happy to hear that they are um, investigating what happens when you die. Are they paying attention to out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences in any of these investigations? Oh, yes, very definitely. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways of, of looking at it. Um, certainly, the, the, um, a number of, of institutes have been looking at chronicling, um, you know, just recording all of these different near-death experiences. But then you've got someone like Dr. Sam Parnia, who, who is a resuscitation medicine expert, and he has been doing a study on... Um, resuscitation medicine, but at the same time working in a cardio unit, uh, whenever someone um, has died that they bring back, uh, they will ask them what kind of experiences they have had, and they'll put them through a number of questions to determine if they've had a near-death experience. And, And in that way, it's a very controlled situation because they know exactly physiologically what was happening in the body. So they can begin to try to, you know, uh, um, document, well, from a physiological point of view, you know, was a person really dead having these experiences? Um, I think this is something that surprised me, that actually as as, as our technology gets better, we are learning more ways of measuring death. So I thought it was just enough to have no brain activity and no um, heartbeat, no blood circulating. Um, But apparently there are debates uh, over what exactly is dead. (laughs) So that was kind of interesting. (laughs) That sounds like a bunch of doctors. Yes, they would be debating all kinds of stuff like that. That's funny. Yeah. But it is interesting that in the most controlled environment, uh, near-death experiences are being documented and considered, um, as well as as people like um, Dr. Peter Fennick in the U.K., who has spent a a good portion of his life um, uh, cataloging and and recording, uh, you know, stories of near-death experiences. Um, so uh, the, there's there's those things, but I think that that the physiological aspects of what happens when you die is very interesting. I, I should say I, I interviewed this woman, um, Penny Sartori, in Wales, and she wrote an amazing book called The Wisdom of Near Death Experiences, and she's a a, a PhD uh, nurse uh, who did her dissertation on this subject, and she we were talking about people who have had near-death experiences, but also had extraordinary healing experiences afterwards. So someone that had, you know, stage 4 cancer in a very short time is healed. And she said, instead of debating whether near-death experiences are real, wouldn't it be a better use of time and money if we looked at how it is when there are spontaneous healings, what is happening in the body when that's taking place? Absolutely. That's a brilliant thing. And is anyone doing that? Uh, well, I'm sure a few people are, but, but I, I think for the purpose of, of this documentary, I'm interested in talking to some of the doctors who understand how the body actually supports itself when it's dying. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, energy medicine or whatever that is, those kinds of incredible healings is very much at its infancy. 
Um, but in the meantime, what can we learn about the way our body works to um, both heal itself and also, you know, when it when it's no longer possible, how do how do we support ourselves as we're dying? Just physiologically, what are the things that are happening so that we're not blocking them and causing yeah. more pain to ourselves? Right. Oh, that's so incredible. Well, tell us where where are you uh, with the film now? What stage are you in? Well. Um, as you can tell, it's such a huge subject that uh, it's now a three-part documentary series uh, because one 90-minute film just wasn't going to do any of all of this justice to be able to really have a holistic view of death. So um, it's three in three parts now, and I'm closing in on some final interviews that need to be done this year, and I hope part one will be done um late next spring. So we're kind of development financing and shooting all at once. <laughs> that is a lot for one producer. It's a lot to do on your own. Well, you know, I mean, you started off talking about intending, and I think one of the things that appealed to me about intending wasn't just that there's something powerful about having a, a view of where you want to go, knowing where you want to go, but also just the idea that if there's other people that see and validate the importance of something like this, and I've been so fortunate lately, especially getting lots of validation for this project and people telling me how important it is, and every time it's like a huge gust of wind on my back, you know, it's like athletes running a marathon. If there's no, if there's no people lining the streets cheering them on, you know, it's not the same. You yes, know, it's exactly. when you've got people cheering you on, it's like it's like some extra energy for out of nowhere. And so, um, I I feel like yeah, it is. It's it's a long process. It's you know, gosh, I mean, all independent filmmakers are have to be one part wizard just to handle coming up with the idea, you know, developing it, producing it, paying for it, marketing it. <laughs> you know, it's really a lot of work. I know, I know. Well, then that takes me to the Illuminati Film Festival that you went to. I want to know more about that because I heard that uh, it was in Sedona and it was for Works in Progress and, and you got into their professional incubator track. Tell us about that. Sure. The Illuminate Film Festival is also a um, a screening festival uh, that was started four years ago by a woman named Danette Walpert, who's an amazing visionary organizer extraordinaire who's compassionate about this idea of supporting a new genre in filmmaking, which she calls conscious cinema. And so as part of her festival, um, they do this thing called a conscious film convergence. So it's kind of like the industry section that a lot of festivals have where filmmakers come and they talk to each other and they hear um, leaders of their genres, um, you know, talking about their experiences. And uh, so as part of the, the, the conscious film convergence, there was um, a filmmaker's lab that was open to just a small handful of people that you had to apply to. And 
the filmmakers lab was um, uh, a three-day program before the festival started to kind of workshop the people who got in their films. And so uh, When You Die was one of uh, seven or eight projects that was accepted into the lab. And that was really remarkable because I'm sure they get hundreds of submissions for this thing. And and the team was really um, a top-notch uh, team led by Paola De Florio and Peter Rader, who uh, made a very beautiful documentary called Awake, the Life of Yogananda. But Paola is a, a showrunner well-known in L.A., and, and Peter is a scriptwriter who's also had a lot of big, big, big hits. So the two of them were just uh were really amazing. Um so that was like one wow to get into, but then we got into a second thing which was called the Conscious Cinema Accelerator program. And uh again it was, you know, a by submission thing and uh what part of what they do is is to help line you up with some mentors for your project. So it's sort of like um, you, they have a list of people who are who are potential mentors, and you say, well, who are your top, you know, ten in order, and and then they and they sort of shop you to those mentors, and they might say no or whatever. But I got all five of my top uh, choices, which was just terrific, and um, uh, and That's then you know, they don't. They don't necessarily have to stay with your project, but but my mentors all want to, um, and and so they're providing me with all kinds of great insight. You know, from um, you know a top marketing uh, person, uh, Nancy Trent, who Trent and Associates handles like some of the top health and wellness brands in North America, um, getting some really good. Um, uh, Advice from a uh, um, uh, A-listed Hollywood screenwriter, uh, Bruce Jewell Rubin, who is, uh, you know, he did Ghost and Jacob's Ladder and uh, Time Traveler's Wife, a whole bunch of amazing things. And uh, so he's going to help along the way with script as I need it, uh, you know, structure some of those little bouncing off of things, as well as he promised to be my bullshit meter. You know, if it gets too woo-woo... <laughs> You know, he's going to bring me back. Um, and uh, so those are just some of the people um, that, that uh, I was able to connect with and, and who are, are uh, going to be a huge help, I already have been a huge help. Oh, this is what, what a gift. These are wonderful gifts for you. Tell me, what is Nancy Trent's company name? It's called Trent and Company. So it's and her she last does name. marketing. Trent and Company, uh huh, marketing. Wow, that's mm-hmm. good to know. Well, um, so now let's talk about your website, www.whenyoudie.org. You say that your plans are to make this the Huffington Post of the dying community. So tell us your vision. Yeah, well, it's already a pretty good website, if I don't say so myself. Um, I think that I, I've nicknamed it the Huffington Post of Death and Dying because um, <laughs> we are uh, an aggregator of the best of uh, death and dying articles, podcasts, videos from the English-speaking world. So you'll find things from Australia, from the U.K., and, of course, all over North, North America. 
Um, and it really what we are trying to do here is compile a whole ton of information on every aspect of, of, of the culture, the medicine, the um, science of death and dying. And not so much that we're trying to be experts on any one thing, but we want people who have questions to come and find answers or at least the right direction for them to find their answers. You know, or we want people to come and suddenly have questions they could never have formulated before because they didn't know. And there's a lot not to know about death and dying, uh, which is so funny because you'd think we all do it. But so 80% of our content, this is our, our goal, we're not quite there yet, 80% is curated um, content from around the world, and the other um, 20% is original material that we generate. We have our own podcast that we're just launching. We've written articles. We've um, uh, got some videos up there. So it's not just other people's stuff, but it's it's also some of our own. And then there's also some information about the documentary. But it is meant to be a standalone website um, in addition to supporting the documentary as it as it develops. Wonderful. What a gift to all of us. That's great. So now you say you that you are hiring a search in engine optimizer for the site. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure as all of your listeners, and you know too, Carol, from your own website, you know, it's not enough just to toil over the design and the content of a website, but you've got it's got to be able to be found by people who need to know. And so we've, um, you know, brought on a, a someone who's working with us right now who's a search engine optimization expert. And he's done a technical review of the site and found all kinds of things that needed to be uh, changed to make it more um, searchable by Google. You know, our goal is to be in the top five. When you when you search death and dying, we want to be in the top five, you know, the first page of that search. And so, uh, so there's technical things, you know, like... Uh, um, a lot of people upload photos to their websites, but they're too big because they the files are so big that because they have all this metadata connected to it so that pages don't load as quickly maybe as they ought to. And, you know, we're all very savvy users, you know, in a hurry. You go to a website, you want to find something really fast, and if there's anything that slows down the movement of your, you know, um, of a person on your pages, then they're going to just click it off and go someplace else. So all of those things have to be like lightning fast, and he's he's helped technically to do that. And he's now in the middle of a content review, uh, and and what that content review is, will you know at the end when he's done give us our recommendations for how we structure content so that it is you know it optimizes Google's ability to find us. So that's that's what that's all about. And I'll tell you, you know, anybody who has a website should absolutely have this done because uh, so much effort, time, money, love goes into creating these things. If no one can find you, then what was the point? This is so true. And when we look for some of the things that 
that we you were saying earlier there are things that we don't know that that we still are learning about we have to step in and and broaden our thinking on how to increase our reachability how to understand our our subjects more etc would you agree oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i really in so many ways the world is so big and complex and uh we don't always know what the right question is so just trying to and i know i do this when i go on a google search for something i don't really know what the question is so i throw out a bunch of words and then stuff pops up and i go oh wow well that's really cool too yes it's yes. what i call the and, deep dive and, right and and it's it's actually that rabbit hole how how far do you want to go to <laughs> because it's endless Oh, yes. There's so well, much information out there for us to learn from, and there's always something new developing each day that yeah, makes it, that, um, yeah. you know, an endless process. But at some point, let me just ask you, at some point, where do you feel that you, you – do you ever get to that place where you feel satisfied with the research that you do? And, and, and what do you do with that when you, when you get there? Um, well, I, I mean, I think I, I think that a lot of film directors would say this, um, certainly with documentary, is that on some level there's you're never really satisfied, but at a certain point you have to say, okay, you're done now, you know, uh-huh. and 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 then you have to really love that now point. Um, and and I think when you step away a year later, you go, yeah, it was complete. That was really the right place to stop. Um, but when you're in the middle of it, it's just exactly like you say. Things are always shifting or there's somebody else that you didn't think of before or, you know, someone comes along and they say, oh, you've got to meet Henry. Henry's amazing. And you go, but I've wrapped production, <laughs> you know. And then you think, oh, my God, maybe I need Henry, you know. So at a certain yeah. point, that line has to get drawn because the mind, you know, the inquisitive mind is kind of insatiable, particularly in, in documentary filmmakers. <laughs> but I'm sure oh, in most of us. Because, oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And in your case, because you're doing a, a it's a doc series as well, right? Right. So oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you can carry on with new inspiration and things that you didn't feel were a fit in the in part one and carry yeah. on into the others. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that that's what happened. It wasn't my intention to create a, you know, a limited series. Um, and for any any potential broadcasters or or webcasters out there, it could become a, it could be six parts. We could make it, you know. <laughs> It doesn't have to just be three. Um, uh-huh. But, I mean, the way it stands now, I mean, as as the three parts, um, they are still 90 minutes each. So it is a, it's, they are feature-length, you know, uh, limited series. Um, and, and it was because there's so much information. You know, we're really at such an exciting time in our lives um, where, you know, the conditions for – for scientific discovery and research 
um, as well as you know bringing together kind of more the the ancient wisdom that exists and seeing you know oh my goodness do do these things look similar or not um, you know mm-hmm. it's 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 just a really amazing time that we live in for this kind of subject to be explored. Yes, it is. I um, I have to share. Um, many years ago, um, I was approached by a publisher who um, who said he was putting together a compilation of stories of people who have had near death experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things he want he had heard about a story of an experience I had, and he wanted to see if if I would be interested in sharing it in the book. What I what I noticed the common thread was that each of the people who shared their stories really had a passion and a longing for reaching out and helping anyone who who would question or wonder what that process is like as they went through it and some of the things we can do to help make it a more healing process for everybody, not just the person who is making their transition. Have you come across any of that kind of work in your research? Yeah, well, I mean, I actually think that's the gift dying in a certain way. Um, when when we're able to... Now, were you talking about just near-death experiences, or did you mean, you know, em- embracing death and dying as part of life in general? Yes, exactly, embracing. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that that there's um so many gifts that happen when when we um embrace death and dying as part of the natural progression of life, you know, as part of the cycle of life. Um we have a lot of fear in society around this and and it does create a lot of friction for many families. But but when you're able to kind of really lean in and embrace that and all of the fear and frustrations and whatever things you might have going on it's not like suddenly we become like you know uh, mother teresa's you know we still might have issues with our mother or we still might have you know all these other things but there is a lot of love that is just you know really percolating when you're able to have a genuine conversation with a loved one who's dying, you know, because, mm-hmm. it, I mean, we hear it all the time that, um, you know, what did the dying have to teach us, you know? Well, it wasn't I should have worked harder, right? I should have loved right. more, right? So all of these very basic human emotions about acceptance and love and time in nature and at taking advantage of the preciousness of human life, those are the things that are still very present um, around um, around death and the passing of someone. So as, as uh, uh, one of the people who I, I interviewed, who's a, a deaf midwife, said to me, you know, uh, it's like we eat animals. And you know, a lot, not everybody, but many of us do. Uh, and and we need to, you know, and they've they, because they died, we have life. And she said, it's just like when someone dies, we should say thank you. 
thank mm. you for everything, you know, and, and there's that same kind of celebration around uh, what's taken place and not a rush to go back to work, but to be in that space of passing and sadness and grief and 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 also maybe a little joy in there too, along with the heartbreak. Um, it's not uncommon yeah. for people, you know, to really tell some body jokes, you know, as as they're bringing mom to the cemetery. You know, <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, I think that we're we're you know we're human beings. We're filled with all kinds of emotions, and so really yeah. the 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 gift of embracing it is is the the gift of feeling our humanity. Mhm. Yes, and all of the different cultural pieces that come in to the picture as well. There's so many different um perceptions of how how a family goes through that process too. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I, f- I kind of feel that uh, the way that we die is going to really change a lot, particularly, you know, with the boomer generation who just never did anything the way their parents did it. And uh, we're finding more that people want um, uh, home funerals, you know, or alternative mm-hmm. funerals. So we're not talking about spending $10,000 on a on a coffin, you know, it might be a pine box, but then, uh, then you know, it might be that a bunch of people get together and paint it and design it and, you know, that there's mm-hmm. more opportunity for people to engage in some kind of ritual. Now, that might not be everybody's thing, but there are many mm-hmm. different ways that we can, can work with ritual as a way of um, uh, establishing healthy grieving. You know, especially for yeah. people who have had long, protracted um, illnesses, the number of people that are holding jobs and caring for a loved one has gone way, way up. And more people have PTSD now than ever before because they're they're just, especially, you know, cancer is a roller coaster, not just for the person who has it, but for the loved ones who are caring for them. Because they've taken time off from work, and they think, you know, when they when they get better, I can go back to work, and they go back to work, but then suddenly they have to take time off again, and employers are saying, well, why are you doing this, and you know, and the, all the stress of doing that. So we need ways of um, of letting people, you know, validate the grief and stress and difficulty that we're going through, so that we don't end up with PTSD. You know, and I think ritual right. is a way that that we can do more and more of that. You know, um, you mentioned earlier that you you did a lot of work with your website and your social media and all of the areas that help you. You said you wanted to be in the top five of mm-hmm. yes. people being able to and do the work. Yes, and. You know, in some ways, when filmmakers look at the type of work that's ahead of them, if they're just starting out especially, mm-hmm. it's, it seems daunting to them that there is so much to do. Yeah. What, what would you share with them that would help them in that process of really getting it rolling and feeling, um, feeling um, 
that sense of accomplishment even in the beginning? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing that that's really important is um to let go. You know, as, as a as an independent filmmaker, especially it's like if you have the concept, you know, you're not you're not getting the rights to a book, but you're trying to do something original. Um well, I mean, not that that is an original, but uh, so you're you're the one who's developing the ideas, you're you're doing a lot of the research yourself you're doing the writing, you're doing the pitching, you know, right on down the line. And then, of course, there's, you know, potential websites, certainly Facebook pages, the Twitter account needs tending and, and so forth and so on. You know, the the very first thing I would say is let go, relax a little bit, and look for people to help you. Um, yeah. You know, this was very difficult for me to do. You know, I'm a bit of a control freak. And I even have an amazing business partner who's got all kinds of capabilities, you know, but still it's like, you know, I have to do it, but I have to get to a certain place before I can turn it over to other people. But actually, if you can relax a little bit, start asking advice from people, you know, especially I think around social media, advice is really, really helpful. Even if you think you know all the answers, um, you know, talk to someone, you might discover that, well, Twitter isn't the most important front line, you know, but maybe your Facebook is as long as you can work with communities and, you know, I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole thing there. But, you know, if you get advice from people, you might be surprised what you don't know. But also then people will say, well, here, let me help you. Let me do this for you. I know you don't have any money. I could do a little something. Or, you know, people show up. And it's surprising mm-hmm. when when you're so passionate about something and inquisitive, people really will show up and help you. Um and but you have to relax and allow that. The allowing people to help you is a huge, huge thing, and it's I think the hardest thing for independent filmmakers. Um, and then the other thing, you know, other mantra aside from allowing, is um, I don't know. And it's the mm-hmm. sooner you can get that out of the way, you don't know. I don't know anything about this subject at all. So who can tell me? Who seems interesting? You know and really em- embrace curiosity a lot more. It softens the whole thing. You know, it re- really does. Ask for help, allow for help, you know, and be really, really curious. And I think, honestly, if you do those things, everything else starts to line up. That's beautifully and Yeah, and thank you. So we're really at what's most important. I promised to people that we would talk about uh, some tips about producing unique genre films. So those are good. Did you want to add anything more to that? Well, I guess the only other really, the really obvious sort of thing is um, that, you know, for just about every subject uh, on earth, um, there are organizations and people uh, who are also interested in those things. So finding those organizations, you know, and you can really just start in your own community, whether you live in a in a place that's sort of out of the way like I do, or if you're in a big city like, uh, you know, New York or Toronto or L.A., um, reach out and find people that have interests in the things that you're interested in. 
And that will lead more quickly to connections and ideas than you could possibly imagine. So I guess, again, more and more, um, I would say, you know, reach out to people. You know, uh, don't don't stay on the Internet just doing all your research like, you know, just you and the screen. Get out and talk to people. Um, and, and also I think you might be amazed at how extraordinary people are right in your backyard. So uh, I think that that's a really big a really big part of it is uh, we spend exactly. too much time on our screen. So get out exactly. Yes, this is what filmmakers have done for years is they they had to go greet and te- uh, talk to people. And getting back into that is so powerful. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, creating strategic partners because since I'm at the hub of this wheel here about film funding, I hear filmmakers tell me that they go to their – they meet – or companies or people in organizations who are aligned with them, and then they make it a point to either go visit them if they're local or to to keep them updated with the film, and eventually that person can take you to money because he's sitting on a mailing list of people of like mind, and sometimes they do. They will help you. Right. So what are the pitfalls that you suggest that filmmakers avoid? Uh, I think Claire and I were kind of getting there a little bit, is that, uh, you, you know, knowing when to stop and just make your damn film. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. No, this is it. This is a sign of a good director because one of my best friends was a top DP in Hollywood, and he was always on time and always under budget. And I said, how do you do it? He said, he gave me a one-liner. He said, I look at the set and I say, you know what? I could spend another five hours on this set, but nobody's going to know what I have done. It's not going to matter. It's television. Shoot it. And <laughs> he he knew when to call it and say no. That's your right. your word that you used. You say no. Thanks. Right, right. So that's good. Well, how did you handle making a living and at the same time producing when you die? Oh well, I'm still very much in the middle of trying to make that all work. Um, <laughs> you know, you just do, and and I and I think just simply. Every time, you know, there's some kind of validation, I hate to say, it's just maybe the point of where I am at at the moment. But whenever I sort of hear, wow, this is important, somehow more space opens up and and more things get done. So I guess that also really speaks to getting out and talking to people, you know. And I I think it is a a legitimate phase in in the life cycle of making a, a documentary that you do spend a certain amount of time kind of in in your hermitage you know putting it together getting your ideas together but then once you get out there and you're really talking with people things shift and change and a lot of energy comes in you know so the the early days are kind of lonely days in a way all the more reason to get out and talk to people but they they are and then and then it really shifts so at each stage, it's a different kind of um, uh, stamina, I think, you know. But but for all the people that have said, yes, this is great, keep going, um, then it makes, you know, producing and, and, and doing the other work for our company and so on that, that, that we do, uh, it makes it more possible. 
Of course. Well, um, what's your vision for the film? Do you see it being played in community screenings, or what is your grand vision? Yeah, I absolutely do, and I, I think this was true for for all of my my films. It sort of would it makes me very happy to think of groups of people coming together and watching the film together and talking about it. Because more than anything, you know, um, this film and and all the other ones uh, are really meant to stimulate conversation, you know, and and I and create a sense of community because that's that's what storytelling has always done since you know the the fire was you know invented or discovered. Um, so yeah, getting people together in community screenings is absolutely fantastic. I would like it to be, you know, uh, on television. Uh, I would like it, you know, to certainly go to uh, some of the the, the sites, you know, um, uh, like some of my other films, Netflix and iTunes. But, you know, also I'm very interested in some of these new emerging portals for conscious cinema. Um, and so I know Gaia TV is one. Uh, but I want people to be able to find it at the same time. Uh, so, which is why I like things like Vimeo on Demand and and Netflix because people can find content there. Um, they're already trained to do it. So I actually feel like I want it available in every, you know, media, you know, in perpetuity, <laughs> you know, known to right. mankind and translated. So right, <laughs> exactly. So that's it's what I like. But oh, I love you know, it. one thing. Carol, though that I that I did learn, you know, among many things at Illuminate Film Festival, was um, that even though my film isn't finished right now, that even though the first you know ninety minute uh, segment in it isn't finished, I have a lot of content, and um, there is a real market for short, um, small, digestible bits of information. So I can take some of my existing content that I have in the can and turn it into 10 minutes or less clips um, that are polished and that are still part of the When You Die project, uh, but I can sell them to some of the web, uh, you know, website, web, web uh, what do you call them, web exhi- exhibitors? Um, uh-huh. Some of the web platforms, that's where I'm looking for, uh, who are looking for short content. So, you know, suddenly, and even certain broadcasters are looking for short content. So you can still have a feature film or a, a feature doc series that you want to sell, but then you can also sell some of that content before you've even finished your film. And no, that was new. a real um, eye-opener to me, that this, that short content is really in demand right now. And it makes sense because people watch stuff on their phones, on the subways, um, so that you know, someone. What could somebody watch on their way to work? You know, when they're in public transportation, not in their car. Absolutely, that's a brilliant new way to to market your film. And yeah. believe me, you will be creating a market for those people. For when you have your ninety-minute film ready, those people will be waiting for it. You'll be yep, sending it to your website, collecting their name, and then you can announce the release of the film, and they'll be there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It works well, in so many ways. I know. It's very exciting, Johanna. Well, tell us how people can reach you then. 
Well, people can reach me through our website, you know, which is www.whenyoudie.org, O-R-G, uh, and there's contact information on there. Um, that's probably the easiest way to, to find me because when you die is a lot easier to remember. <laughs> yes, that's great. Okay, well, I'm so thrilled with the information you gave, and I hope that we can come back to you in eight or nine months and see where you are. You should have a lot more developed by then. Your first film might be completed, right? Right. That'll be fun. Okay, Joanna, thank you great. for sharing I'd love all to this. Do that. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you, Claire, for your questions and for supporting. Sure. Okay. It's an honor, believe me. All right. Okay. Take care, everyone. Be well. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye, Thanks, Johanna. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.